Well, good morning. Happy New Year. It is now 10.52. If you are still going strong on your New Year's goals, good job. My name is Matthew Perez. I'm one of the staff elders here at Life Church, and it's a privilege to open up God's Word this morning. We are uh, through uh, the Advent season. We were going through the series in the Gospel of John, and today we will finish our time in the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have a handheld device, we'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I'll be in the ESV and whatever version that you have, we want to encourage you to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, we do have some on the table on the way out. Please grab one. You can grab one now. It's yours to keep if you want it. We want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word in your hand. And we'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. So on January 8th, 2020... Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, announced they were stepping back from their duties within the British royal family. And I will confess, I have no idea what that means. I Googled it. Apparently, it was covered by a lot of media sources, including Oprah. I'm from Chicago. If you interviewed by Oprah, you've hit the big time. It's a Netflix series now that some of you may be watching. You may have popped some popcorn and have been enjoying it, if you have. Good, enjoy it. Uh, there's even a Wikipedia page entitled Megxit. And again, I only learned it because I Googled it this week. To be honest, I didn't even know the Game of Thrones was a movie or a show about something other than British Empire until a couple of years ago. I am that, like, not even checked in on what goes on with the British monarchy. I mean, no disrespect to any of you if you've been following this. If you are, like, hooked in, if they're on your social media feed, if you've been binging Netflix, it's cool if you have. If you haven't, that's fine, too. Harry has a brother. I think his name is William. I don't know which one is which. I don't know which one is older. I'm not even sure if they have a sister. I think they live in the U.S. now. Couldn't tell you much about it. But I'm sure after the service, one of you could tell me all of it. And if that's you, that's cool. See, I don't question the validity of these things. They're true. They happened and are happening. But it has zero impact on my life. It doesn't affect how I live. It doesn't affect how I think. It really has nothing to do with me day to day. And I mean no disrespect to either one of them. The news is true. It just doesn't impact me. Today is January 1st, 2023. In 22 weeks, my youngest daughter will graduate high school. My baby is not a baby anymore. She's turned into a beautiful young woman that her mother and I are extremely proud of. And like many seniors, she has been applying to colleges, looking over acceptance offers, looking at financial aid packages, weighing her options, excited at some schools, and thumbing her nose at others. Sometime in the next few weeks, she's going to make a decision as to where she's going. We're pretty sure we know where she's going. And please do her the extreme favor of not bombarding her if you know her after the service to ask her where she's going. Give her the respect and privacy of that. The truth is my daughter's graduating, and this is going to have an enormous impact on my wife and I. If she stays home and decided to commute, that would affect how we bought groceries, how we did laundry, how we would figure out car situations, all of this would change based on the factual information of where she's going to college. And with our youngest now ending high school, with that chapter of her life coming to an end, it ends a time for my wife and I 
seven plus years of us going to athletic events for her and her brother and sister, to plays, to going to concerts, going to proms, they're all coming to an end. You see, both of these situations, Prince Harry and Meghan and my daughter, they're both real, factual situations. Both of these events are true. And yet both of these events have extremely different impacts on my life. Events happen and we ask if they're true. And if they are, we ask ourselves, what do I do with this evidence? Some truths are like Harry and Meghan. They don't impact you. Not only do they not impact you, they, they have no bearing on your life. Others may be invested and you're perfectly fine with that. Other truths hit us more squarely in the jaw, like when a child is going away to college or is getting married or moving out. For some, when we look at the cross, we look at it like I do Prince Harry and Meghan. It's cool if you follow it. It's cool if it's for you, but it's not for me. Got a lot of popping here. Are we good? Move it away. I should have shaved this morning. Well, exactly. Sorry, my wife likes the rugged look. <laughs> She's not here, and I'm going to pay for that one when she learns. Let's just do it later. <laughs> Focus. Here's the deal. We can't treat the cross or the empty tomb or the resurrection like I do Prince Harry and Meghan. We can't look at it and say, it's cool, Matt, if you... Let that impact your life. I just choose not to. These are truth claims. These are evidential claims that we have to look at, and they do impact our lives. The Apostle Paul was at Mars Hill in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and he's talking to a group of individuals who love philosophy. They love to think and ponder deeply on the mysteries of life. And in Acts chapter 17, in verse 30, Paul said, or we're told, Paul says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul is on Mars Hill and he says, listen, we need to repent because God has fixed a day when judgment is coming. He's going to judge the world to the standard of righteousness. And that standard is through a man, Christ, who he has appointed. And to give us an assurance that this day is coming, God raised this man from the dead. And some of them heard Paul and they mocked him. Because dead people stay dead. Right? The ancient Near East was not filled with a bunch of gullible rubes who didn't understand how the world worked. These were people who understood that dead people stay dead. They did not have a deficient knowledge of life and death. And it was as an outrageous claim then as it is today to say the guy who was dead is now living. This morning in our passage, we look at our last in a series of encounters with Christ in the Gospel of John. And the encounter features an empty tomb and a man that everyone thought was dead who isn't. And so this morning, what I want us to do with those who are present today, what I want us to do 
is what those did then and what everyone has had to do throughout human history and we have to do today. We have to examine this evidence. We have to ask ourselves, is it true? And if it is, then we have to ask ourselves what we do with this truth. Let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Let's look at the first seven verses together and set the scene. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. All right, let's stop right there. And let's examine the evidence. It's the first day of the week, and Mary comes to the tomb, and it's open. And she thinks something is wrong. Because empty tombs, or uh, tombs that are sealed, should remain sealed. In verse 2, Mary runs, and she goes and finds Peter and the other disciple who's unnamed, and that disciple is John, the author of the Gospel of John. And based on what she has seen, she's concluded one thing. Somebody must have taken the body because dead people stay dead. And so she goes to Peter and John and says, listen, somebody has taken the body. The the grave has been robbed. He's gone. They have him. She doesn't say who the they are, but she says they have him. Mary's conclusion is the tomb is open. The body must have been moved because it's not there. The thought that he may be alive isn't even in the forefront of her mind. Someone has taken this body. And so the two men head to the tomb in verse 3. John reaches the tomb and finds linen cloths. And he finds this to be odd. Because grave robbers don't leave things behind. You take everything. Right? It's like the old Boris Karloff, the Grinch who stole Christmas, which is really the only Grinch worth watching. You take everything. You leave nothing behind. That's what grave robbers did. And yet, things have been left behind. Peter comes in and verifies in verse 6, there's no body. Last week at Christmas, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, Lazarus came forth all wrapped in linens and needed help out, but Jesus is just gone. The cloth is there. But there's nobody struggling to get out, nobody murmuring through cotton over their face saying, get me out of here. It's just cloth and a body that's gone. The empty tomb is going to radically change two things. Now, if you were a kid of the 80s, number one, you're old. My daughter just informed me that right before I came up. She's like, Dad, you graduated in the 90s. That's vintage. All right? So if you were a kid of the 80s, you maybe remember the word radical. It was usually either said in a Californian-like accent or by turtles with ninja-type powers. Right? It was slang of the 80s to mean something was cool or something was awesome. 
When I say that the empty tomb radically changes things, I'm not using it in the 80s slang way. A radical event is one that creates an extreme change, a substantial change to an existing system. It's an event that takes the current system and flips it on its head. And this empty tomb creates two radical changes. It flips two systems on its head. It radically changes how we should view death, and it radically changes our position before God the Father. Let's explore both of those. How does the empty tomb radically change our view of death? Let's look at verse 8, 9, and 10. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John goes in and he sees evidence that the body is gone. The rental linen wraps are there. And seeing this, we're told that he believes. John, who was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, understands that dead people stay dead. But John was there when he watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And now John sees an empty tomb. He believes. We're told he doesn't understand the scripture, verse 9. Psalm 16, 10. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Isaiah 53, 10, Hosea 6, 1 and 2, all point to the reality that the Messiah would live forever. So it's scripture they don't understand yet. We're not quite sure which one it is or told which one it is, but they're not quite sure they got the whole picture, but he's believing when he sees this empty tomb. How death is to be viewed is flipped on its head because the tomb is empty. Friends, we're but an instant it's just the reality of our time here on earth. Psalm 39.5 tells us that we are but a breath. Think about that for a moment. Psalm 39 tells us you're like the steam rising from your morning coffee. You're like the mist that covers your mirror after a warm shower this morning. You're like the breath that's exhaled on a really cold, not in North Carolina, but a really cold day. You see it for a second, and it's gone. Psalm 103.15 tells us we're like grass. Yesterday, I took my dog out to use the bathroom, and I look across to my neighbor's yard, and what was once this green, lush, soft grass that was being mowed every week just a couple of months ago, even sometimes twice a week, is now brittle and yellow and dried out and dead. This is who we are. A few years ago, I was dropping off items for a garage sale for a friend who was raising money for an international adoption. They adopted two girls out of Haiti. And as I was dropping off the goods that we had for them to sell to raise funds for this, I was talking to my friend, and I paused mid-conversation. Didn't hear another word he said. Because I looked over, and on the table was a 1970s wherever super shooter electric food gun complete with metal discs and cookie designs. 
I was pumped. As an adult, it is the only item I've ever pulled cash out of my pocket for to buy at a garage sale. The 1970s wherever super shooter electric food gun complete with metal discs and cookie designs and it was in its original packaging where it still is today i couldn't believe i found it if you can't believe what are you i'm even excited about it my friend couldn't believe how fired up i was i opened it up all the attachments were there the instruction manual was there the tamper to put the dough down in the gun was there and I was excited, a great five bucks that I spent. As a child, every December, at Christmas time, I would go to my grandmother's house, and we would make two things. We would make homemade tamales, and we would make spritz cookies with the wherever super shooter electric food gun complete with metal discs for cookie shapes. Memories as a child with my brothers, with my grandma and grandpa, with my cousins, memories of taking my girlfriend over there who is now my wife to make cookies, all right there in the box. And I got it. I was so pumped that I was able to purchase my childhood for five bucks. I lived three houses away. By the time I got home, I was depressed that I was able to purchase my childhood for five bucks. It's like, that's it. My whole childhood was worth five bucks. On Christmas Eve, just a couple of days ago, I pulled out a top cabinet, I opened the box, and we pulled out the wherever electric super gun shooter with metal discs. And I made cookies with my family. And I could close my eyes and I could smell the cookies. And I'm in my grandma's kitchen with a bottle of RC from my grandpa. And the sounds and the smells, it's like I'm there and I can hear my grandmother saying, Mijo, you're making the cookies too fat. Pick the gun up. And I open my eyes and I look in my kitchen and there's my beautiful daughter. And I say, Mija, you're making the cookies too fat. Pick up the gun. And Lord willing, if I and that gun endure, one day I hope to look and open my eyes and see my grandchildren and say, Mijo, you're picking the cookies too fat. Pick up the gun. Life moves quickly. And just like that, moments that shaped you, people who loved you, they're gone. Death has such a hold on us. We want to look younger. We need to eat healthier. We may dye our beards. We purchase wrinkle cream all in the effort to slow down the inevitable. We're aging. From birth, we have been put on a ship headed toward one port of destination. And it's not turning back, and it's not going to divert course. You can try to conceal it. You can try to color it. But no matter how much you want to ignore the reality of death, death does not ignore you. But this fear, this truth of death chasing us down, all changes right here with an empty tomb. Jesus is alive. And the reality gives us a new relationship 
toward death. Christ is alive, and if we're resting in his finished work, if you are resting in the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior, if you are resting in his payment for our sins at the cross, if you have placed your faith in his payment for your sins, then your relationship to death radically changes. You need not fear it. Colossians chapter 3 says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you're in the finished work of Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. In 2023, you don't have to stress staving off death. It's going to come. I don't mean it to sound depressing. But the beauty of the gospel is it's not the end. Instead, we can shift our minds to focus in 2023 and beyond on a future that's secure in Christ, a future that calls us on earth to adjust how we live here, knowing that the ship has set sail. But Christ is at the helm. And you're headed for a secure eternity in his presence forever if you've placed your faith and trust in him. The empty tomb changes radically our view of death. And the empty tomb changes radically our position before the Father. Peter and John went home. Mary is back. Let's pick it up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. At some point, Mary has come back to the tomb. She now sits outside weeping. And she still thinks he's dead. You look at verse 13. She still thinks he's dead and somebody has taken the body. In verse 2, they've taken away the Lord. In verse 13, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they put him, but her thought isn't that he's alive. Someone has taken him. He's dead. In fact, in verse 15, even after Jesus confronts her, she still doesn't realize it's him and still wants to know where the body is. And then verse 16, everything changes. He calls her by name, Mary. 
earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls her by name, and her eyes are opened, and she sees. Nobody has taken him. He's alive. And she clings to him, and in verse 17, notice four things that Jesus says to her. First, do not cling to me. Second, I have not yet ascended to the Father, which means he's going to ascend to the Father. Third, go and tell the disciples I'm alive, and I'm going to ascend. Fourth, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. This is a radical change in the pronouns, my and our. When the Gospel of John opened, we were told in the very beginning of chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That John opens the gospel and says, those who received Christ, who believe in him and his name and who he is and what he has done, as this gospel will show who he is and what he's done, those who believe in him have a positional change and become children of God. In the Gospel of John, John refers to God as the Father 108 times. Jesus calls God my Father 27 times, and Jesus calls God the Father 71 times. But verse 17 is the only verse, it's the only verse in the Gospel of John where Jesus calls God the disciple's Father. See the beauty of that. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Through Jesus, there is a radical change in the relationship with God. It's the only time in the Gospel of John Jesus says, this is your Father now. It's the only time in the Gospel of John that Jesus calls the disciples his brothers. There's a new relationship, as we were told back in John 1. This is why there's no need to fear death. Jesus says, I'm going to ascend to our Father. Do you hear me, brothers and sisters? I'm going to, not my Father, but our Father. And if the Father accepts Jesus, which he does, then we're welcomed into his presence through Christ. In July of 2017, I boarded a plane for Southeast Asia to help train local pastors in how to study and preach the Bible. I landed in country with an American pastor and friend of mine named Steve. I didn't know anyone in the country. Steve did. Steve had been there many times and worked with the pastors many times. 
And so we land in country and we hop a small plane to a very remote airport in a remote part of the country. And we land and we head to this remote village. The village was close to, is, is close to an international neighbor in which there's years of hostility that exist. So when outsiders come in, there is immediate suspicion and for good reason. So the morning after we arrived, we woke up, we jumped in the car and we drive to this remote church in the middle of nowhere and we get in out of the car and we walk in and there's about 15 pastors and they're ready to be talk. I walk in behind Steve and the first thing Steve does is introduce me to the other pastors. He says, this is Matt. He's with me. He's my friend and a pastor who's here to help us train pastors. Now, first off, I thought this was cool because it's the only time in my life that I actually heard someone say, he's with me in a really cool manner, right? Like, hey guys, it's cool. He's with me. And the bummer was I was the he, not the me. Like I wasn't the insider. But he looks at the pastors and says, hey man, he's okay. He's with me. I couldn't just walk in to that church. I was the guest of someone who was allowed to be there. If I would have tried to walk in on my own, I would have been asked to leave. I may have even had the authorities called on me. But I walked in confidently and with joy, meeting men who were eager to learn, and I was accepted and I was welcomed because I was a guest of the one who was invited and the one who had reason to be there. Brothers and sisters, the tomb is empty and it turns our position with God on its head in Christ. It turns our relationship with God on its head in our relationship with him and our position with God. The book of Romans will tell us that we are enemies to God because of our sin, that apart from Christ, we are enemies to God. But that God raised Christ from the dead so that we may walk in newness of life. And Romans 6.11 tells us that now in Christ, we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. And this God is not a God. He's not a father. In Christ, he's now our God. He's now our father. And Christ has ascended to the father so that he can be, we too can be brought into the presence of the father at death. We don't have to fear death. Because in Christ, he gets to look at the Father and say, it's cool. He's with me. When Harry and Meghan left England, when they had the great Megxit, some of you looked at this information and followed it, and you still do. Others of you, like me, looked at it and said, whatever, that's cool. It has nothing to do with me. It's true, but it just doesn't impact me. Friends, the tomb is empty. And we can't treat that like I do Harry and Meghan. It's not a bit of news that we can just ignore if we like or say that's good for you. It's news that impacts us here and throughout eternity. The grave went from full 
to empty. And John went from unbelieving to believing. Mary went from weeping to rejoicing. In 2023, what will you do with the empty tomb that radically changes your view of death and your position before the Father in Jesus Christ? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together this morning openly, joyfully, to sing truths about who you are, to pray and meditate on scriptures, to open your word and see the truth that is revealed inside it. Lord, we don't know what 2023 has in store for all of us individually or even corporately. Lord, we know that time marches on. Lord, we know that the way this broken world works, death is inevitable. But Lord, we also know that we don't have to mourn death like those who have no hope. Lord, in 2023, may we be a people who see the joy of a life rooted in Christ, who see a joy of relationship with the Father rooted in Christ. And may that impact how we move for your glory, both today as well as for the rest of this year and beyond. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.